When I first saw Sling Blade, I was blown away and I couldn't stop doing that. We just hadn't seen a character like that on screen before. Billy Bob Thornton wrote, directed, starred in, and eventually won the Oscar for that film. Then came a string of hits, Armageddon, Bad Santa, and Monster's Ball, to name just a few. He was a bona fide A-list star and got a bad boy reputation while married to Angelina Jolie. The media had a field day. His success is especially remarkable considering the fact that he lived without electricity until he was six years old. But he always did love to write, especially about the South and the characters that have surrounded him his whole life. Those are the stories that he still loves to tell. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Billy Bob Thornton. There's always something about the Southern stories that's a little bit mythical, a little bit magical, a little bit of a tall tale mixed with this heartbreaking reality. Probably the only reason I can write anything is because I've always loved people and loved characters. So I observe people. And uh, it's probably one of the most important things about being a writer is observational skills. I watch the world like I'm watching a movie. And I always have since I was a kid. I grew up in Alpine, Arkansas, and uh, the population there was 110. So we lived in the, in the woods. We didn't have electricity or running water until I was probably six or seven. Now I'm a vegan, but when I was a kid, we ate everything my grandfather killed. He was kind of like Daniel Boone. So we ate possum, raccoon, squirrels, uh, you know, everything like that. And my grandmother did the income taxes for most of the people around there because a lot of them couldn't read or write. I always say the air is heavier in the South. You know, there was a major war fought in the South. Our Civil War was, that's pretty heavy stuff. So to me, and I mean this figuratively, I can't vouch for the fact that it's a literal thing, but maybe it is. But there are a lot of ghosts in the South. My mom uh, is a psychic. It wasn't like she had a store downtown with a crystal ball sign out front or anything like that. But people would come to the house and she did readings for people at one point. Uh, so I had like the Native American, Italian side on my mom's and the Irishman on my dad's side. So I was raised with, you know, sports and hard work and biscuits and gravy on one side and on the other side, books and crystals and burial mounds and spirits and <laughs> you know, all that kind of thing. That's how people like me turn out the way they do. It's like yeah, all those mixtures, you know. And uh, when your mom's psychic, it's not easy to sneak in the house drunk at night. <laughs> I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> my mom said my dad really liked me till I st started talking. <laughs> he was a hot-headed little Irishman who wasn't very forthcoming with his emotions other than anger. He used to beat me up, but my dad stopped hitting me when I hit him. I lowered the boom on him one day, as he, he used to say. I was about 16. He didn't do it after that, but it shocked him pretty good. My dad was kind of morbid. He used to take my brother and I to the aftermath of like car wrecks and tragedies. It's pretty weird, but I saw way too much too early. Death and mayhem and 
My dad wasn't real articulate, and I don't think he knew how to get a hold of certain feelings, and he'd been in the war, and I think he stared at car wrecks because, and whatever, drownings, whatever it was. I think he was around those things because it wasn't just a morbid curiosity. I think he was trying to figure out why it's so random. Why this guy and not this one? Why at that particular moment was he going there? I think he was trying to figure out life and death and how random and tragic it is. So that's what he liked to do, and he took us. So I guess that was his bonding, his bonding experience with us taking us to car wrecks. He did throw the baseball with me quite a bit and helped me as a pitcher. People used to tie a tire on a rope and throw through it. My dad put a mattress against a tree and laid a tire on the ground and leaned it up against that mattress so I would keep the ball down. That was my strike zone right there. Anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with car wrecks, but I guess I just had to say something good about my dad after saying something like <laughs> dark about him. You know? I don't hold any ill will toward my father. He was scared and insecure and felt like a failure. He took it out on me. He died when uh, he was uh, 46 years old. So I never really knew him that well, even though I lived with him until he died. But men of that generation weren't exactly real open with, with their affection or whatever. You know, I had a rough, rough time with my dad, but uh, I, I loved him. He was kind of, a, I think back on him as kind of James Dean, you know. I mean, he was cool to me. I always thought he was cool. I was afraid of him, but he was cool. And I loved him, and I've forgiven him these days. As a kid, I loved music. That's really all I thought about was rock and roll music and baseball. So I was really just into sports and music. Uh, movies weren't a thing that we uh, paid much attention to, to tell you the truth. I, I just enjoyed movies, that's all. I had no aspiration to be an actor or anything else like that. I didn't even dream of it. But I was a, I was a good pitcher. I was a junk pitcher. I had several pitches. I had a really good slider, a curveball. Uh, I threw fairly hard, not real hard. I threw a screwball, a good changeup. So I tried out for the Kansas City Royals, but they never got to see me throw because I, I got my collarbone broken within about a half an hour of being at their camp. I was talking to a guy, and they were taking infield practice, and third baseman threw over to first base, and the guy wasn't looking and hit me in the collarbone, and that was, that was the end of it. But, uh, you know, I always tell people, let's say I had gotten in the minor leagues or something, uh, I may have taken a completely different path, and I might be selling cars right now. I only got into drama class because I didn't make very good grades, and I thought, well, maybe in drama I can just go in there and goof off and get like a B or something, because I certainly wasn't getting a B in algebra. Also, in drama class, there are a lot of girls. So I, uh, I got in there, and uh, Maudie Treadway was the teacher. This big woman with a booming voice, and uh, she really loved what she did. She caught me writing short stories in her class. I didn't pay attention to much. I would just write short stories, and one day she said, do you not like this? you not want to be in here? I mean, you're always writing. I said, well, I'm... I love writing short stories about people. And she said, well, I got an idea if you're so smart. <laughs> she said, how about you write one of your stories and you can put a couple of the students in here in it and you can put your play on. Well, I wrote a thing about an old couple. 
just shopping in a dollar store. And it was their conversation as they shopped. And you could tell how long they'd been together and how much they knew about each other. It was funny and sad, but uh, it was essentially the kind of thing I still write. And that was the first time I ever did that. And she was the only teacher I ever really had that encouraged me and who didn't think I was just a complete idiot. I spent a lot of time getting set down to the principal's office and getting caught smoking out by the incinerator. So she actually thought I had some worth. She said, I believe you can really do this. She said, did you ever think about going into the theater or the arts or, you know, that kind of thing? Uh, she passed away not too long after I graduated and uh, I was a pallbearer at her funeral. I loved her uh, uh, for encouraging me, you know, really great woman. When we moved into Malvern, Arkansas, the town where I went to school from the woods, Tom Everson was our neighbor. And he was four years older than me, so I got picked on quite a bit by him and his friends. And uh, we never really hung out much until we, we grew up, you know, because I was just a punk kid to him. One time I went over there, they said, oh, we we're hoping you'd come over and play with us. The ball went back in those hedges, and we're all too big to get in there and get it. So you can go get the ball. If you get the ball out, you can play with us. And I went in there, and what I didn't know is the reason they weren't going in there is because there was a yellow jacket's nest in there. And I was stung by like 30 yellow jackets. They're all up in my shirt and everything. And, and they got a huge kick out of it. They thought it was one of the funniest things they ever saw. So that was kind of the beginning of my relationship with Tom. And then ultimately he wanted to go to New York and become a writer, a screenwriter. And we just got in Tom's car. We had a television set and like $500. We didn't know anything. Biggest place we'd ever been was Dallas, and it scared us too. Went to New York, got there at noon, and it was just pissing rain. And we just started walking around. We didn't have a clue, just drenched to the bone. No idea what we were gonna do. This was in 77 when Son of Sam was killing everybody, so we were already nervous about that. Eventually, we got like this old Irishman who was driving a cab, who did, and we said, um, so our car is kinda like, um, there's this Italian restaurant, but it kind of doesn't look like a real nice one. It's sort of like a chain. It looks kind of like a, like a diner, only it's an Italian place. And there's a lot of women standing around over there that with short dresses that kind of look like dudes. And, you know, we just started describing stuff like that to him. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know where that is. <laughs> you got us right over there. And so uh, we left at, uh, at 10 o'clock that night and got the hell out of there. I had had a breakup with the girl I was seeing at home at the time. I said, you know, I'm leaving to seek my fame and fortune, and I'll probably never see you again. So we had this tearful goodbye, and like two weeks later, I was back, and she was with some other guy already, and she said, uh, I thought you were going somewhere forever. I go, yeah, well, well I am, but just not yet. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. I, I really appreciate everything I have, but there's some stuff about struggling and coming up. That's when the magic was, because your dreams are so alive. Eventually, Tom and I loaded up his car again and went to uh, California in uh, June of 1981. I set about becoming an actor. We got out there, and it was real hard for a long time. We got our first apartment on Motor Avenue. The street starts at 20th Century Fox, and it ends at MGM which was MGM at that time, now it's Sony. And we thought that was a sign. We live on a street that's 
bookended by two of the biggest movie studios ever, you know. It wasn't a one-bedroom apartment. It was a one-room apartment. It was a converted motel. So it was just a room with a bed and a little desk and one of those little short refrigerators, you know, like, uh, like you see in a trailer or something. Tom, being the senior member of the duo, thought that it would be a better idea that he slept in the bed and I slept on the floor. Because <laughs> we were creeped out sleeping in the same bed, right? We didn't have any money. We paid $90 a week. You paid by the week for this apartment. And uh, I finally got this job. I saw a Help Wanted sign in the Shakey's Pizza Parlor, and I cleared $96 a week. So we had $6 left over after the rent. And we would buy a generic uh, little bottle of rum at a Lucky Supermarket and a box of powdered donuts every Friday. And the way we ate was they gave you a personal size pizza every day at, at Shakey's. That's what you, when you took your lunch break, you made your own pizza, that's what you got. Instead of making it for lunch, I waited until I got off that night just before we turned the ovens off and I would pile every ingredient on the, on the small pizza and get home at like one in the morning or whatever. And I would wake Tom up, he would get up. So at 1.30, two o'clock in the morning, we would eat this pizza. And that's what we ate for about a year except for Fridays when we had a little rum and a powdered donut. We were in a constant fever of like, you know, poverty and indecision and desperation, yet we weren't phased by it. We just kept going because we'd never really had anything anyway. It wasn't like, people always say, you know, why didn't you, what kept you from just going back home? Well, there's nothing to go back to there. I worked at a sawmill, a machine shop, I hauled hay, I drove a truck. I worked on an asphalt crew as a carpenter's helper. I mean, it wasn't like I would be going back to something amazing. So we just stayed out there. It's like, you know, I'd rather be homeless on the streets of LA than work at a sawmill, you know? My advice to anybody who wants to do whatever it is with their life is don't ever let your dreams die because that's what keeps an artist alive, and I think it keeps people in general going. Sometimes sitting on the floor on Motor Avenue, having a powdered donut and a cup of rum seems like paradise. I think ignorance was my best quality because I never doubted myself. I, I thought everything was just always going to be okay somehow. It was uh, in the mid-'80s somewhere, and I, I had a guy I knew worked for a catering company, and uh, he said, look, you know, I know you need some money. Can you help with this party? And it was on Christmas Eve, which meant you got paid double. I didn't have a tuxedo. I borrowed one from him, and I had to pin the sleeves up because he was really tall. They put me in charge of passing out hors d'oeuvres, and I didn't even know what most of the stuff was. You know, I normally explain. We have a, a crepe with cream goat cheese and whatever the hell it was, but... Uh, I just went around and said, hey, want one of these? <laughs> you know, I wasn't used to that. I'd worked in a pizza parlor. There were a lot of people at that party that I felt just like a scumbag. You know, here I was passing out hors d'oeuvres to all these big famous people. It was pretty, pretty intimidating. And uh, I remember Dudley Moore was playing piano and Debbie Reynolds was there. And Dan Aykroyd, who later became a, an acquaintance of mine, I told him, I said, you know, I served you hors d'oeuvres at at a Hollywood party years ago. And 
there was this little guy with glasses over there standing by a fireplace and just talking to somebody. And I went and offered him fish head or whatever it was. And uh, he just started talking to me and, and in this German-like accent, you know. And uh, he said, so, so you want to be an actor, huh? And at that time, I wasn't clued into the waiters are all actors in L.A., you know, thing. So I thought, you know, the guy must have ESP, you know. He said, why stand in a line, you know, and, and wait to be picked like you're some kind of animal or whatever, you know. I said, uh, he said, can you write at all? And I said, uh, well, yes, sir, actually, I'm, my friend and I, we write screenplays. And he said, well, that's good. He said, that's good because we need writers. He said, right, you know. And anyway, not to go into the whole conversation, but I was real interested in this, so I put my platter of whatever it was down and sat there and talked to this guy for a long time. And he went through all this thing about, you know, create your own way, create your own characters, do your, do your own thing, set yourself apart from people. If there's anything unique about you, bring that to the top, to the forefront. Write your own screenplay and star in it. You know, don't wait around for these people to pick you to play the thug or the whatever, you know. And I went back up to the bar to get some drinks on a tray or whatever, and the bartender, he said, what did Billy Wilder say to you? I said, what? He said, what did Billy Wilder say to you? I said, Billy Wilder? And he said, yeah, the guy you were talking to over there. I said, that's Billy Wilder. I said, well, I was talking to Billy Wilder? Because if I'd have known that was Billy Wilder, I would have probably just been embarrassed and walked away and given somebody else an hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> that's the truth. Our road manager in our band, Tom, he, he always says, hey, look at this guy. He's got a face like a foot. <laughs> well, I've had friends who had, had a face like a foot who thought they were Clark Gable. And whatever the part is, they would want to go read for it and be upset if they didn't get it, you know. Me, I always kind of knew. I always kind of knew that if they're looking for a matinee idol, I just wouldn't go in for it. I, my standard joke is if you want to, if they're doing a movie about Charles de Gaulle, go get a Frenchman. I'm the wrong guy, <laughs> you know. The character from Sling Blade is uh, two or three different people kind of put together that I knew. I used to work in a nursing home, and that voice partially comes from an old man that was in that nursing home that I used to talk to all the time. I wrote it in nine days, over a period of a couple of months, but nine days of actual writing. And we made the movie. I thought my mom and my, my family and a few of my friends would love the movie, and that's as far as it would go. And uh, we screened it in LA and New York. Miramax bought it that night for more money than we ever dreamed it could be bought for. It was uh, quite a run, and the movie became iconic. Like overnight, I became a movie star. Never dreamed I would. And what was odd about it was I became a movie star by playing this extreme character, and that doesn't usually happen. Usually you become one from being... 25 years old and pretty. And there I was, you know, an ugly 30-something-year-old guy. And the next thing you know, wow. <laughs> and after that, you know, it just grew from there. I did Primary Colors and Armageddon and U-Turn, you know, the Apostle and Pushing Ten, Simple Plan, and then into the Coen Brothers world and, and ultimately did another movie that became iconic, which was Bad Santa.
I don't believe in myself 100% because I don't believe I can do everything. What I do believe in is that the things I do well, I'm really good at. The things that I know and that I'm right for, I believe in myself, but I know I'm not right for everything. Use whatever your strength is and don't try to squeeze yourself into spots that you don't belong in, really just be who you are. You gotta have a sense of self to really be something, you know, in, in, this, in this crazy world. After Sling Blade and winning the Oscar, Billy Bob became a huge star. Media attention skyrocketed over his high-profile celebrity relationships, first with actress Laura Dern, and later his marriage to Angelina Jolie. But the attention never quite suited him. Today, he says, he prefers a simple, quiet life, and he's found one with partner Connie Angland and his children. You know, when I became well-known after Sling Blade, I kind of never stopped working again. There are certain things that once you do them, you're kind of always there, no matter what shape your career's in. You're kind of always there. You win an Academy Award, you're sort of always there. You may have highs and lows, but you stick around. But I don't think fame changed me that much. I kind of feel like the same guy I, I was when I was 19, really. I'm, I'm humbled by the experience. And it never really went to my head, I don't think. But it, there were times when it was hard to handle and still is in some ways. I mean, particularly, you know, like when you're in a celebrity marriage or two actors or whatever they are, are married. I, I had one of those periods. And during that time, I found celebrity to be difficult just because of privacy issues. I just kind of look like a regular guy, to tell you the truth, and I feel more comfortable in that. I'm in a good relationship now and have been for 10 years and we have a beautiful daughter and I went the opposite from my dad. I, I you know, my dad was kind of, he was kind of rough on us. And me, I'm like doting on my kids so much that they're like, especially my sons, they're 19 and 20 now. So I'm always, I love you, I love you. It's like, you know, dad, I'm, I'm just going to the kitchen. <laughs> you know, I'll be right back. <laughs> and my little girl, I dote on her too. It's just ridiculous. and. She has me wrapped completely around her finger. Uh, I just do anything she says. We live in, you know, kind of up in the woods, in the city limits, but kind of in the woods. I've never been a rich guy. I mean, you wouldn't know it. And I just, I just don't fit in that world at all, and I get real uncomfortable around it. And uh, I don't do any of that stuff. Never been to a polo match, never been skiing, never been... At, uh, I mean, the, the places that I've been where the rich and famous gather are places that I've had to go. I have to go to the premiere. I have to go to the film festival and they're putting us in this thing in a chalet on the mountain and, you know, you, all this kind of thing. I don't choose to go there. I have one vacation spot in mind. One of these days, I'm taking my kids for Christmas to Vermont or New Hampshire or somewhere like that. And we're going to get one of those houses like in the Budweiser commercial where they got the horses driving by and the sleigh and all that kind of thing. Outside of that, I'm not the vacationing type. <laughs> you know, I gotta be working or doing something all the time. A, a beach in the Bahamas or something like that is my worst nightmare. Excess kind of creeps me out, but I like to have a good pair of boots, you know, like fancy boots sometimes. I like, I like uh, Western boots. And I buy my clothes, the ones I do buy, 
I'll go to Old Navy and get girls' jeans because I'm kind of bony and they fit me better. So I buy a lot of clothes that cost $29.95. And the rest of the clothes, most of my good clothes, I swipe them from the movie set or ask for them or lose them conveniently. So I've never spent a lot of money on stuff. I think we need to go back. I have an eight-year-old daughter who reads books, even if it's more convenient and even if we offer the iPad. She'd rather read a book, and I'm really happy about that because we're buried in this connection we all have to each other, which has its benefits. You know, obviously, if you're pinned down someplace in some country where there's a war going on or something like that, it'd be nice to have a cell phone. Tell them where you are. You're buried under some rubble. But every now and then, don't you want to wonder? Sometimes isn't it nice to say, who was it that was in that movie with Frank Sinatra? And two days later, remember it or call a buddy of yours who says, I think that was Ernest Borgnine. You know? We don't do that much anymore, and I think we've lost our sense of magic and our sense of wonder because of it. So I think we need to slow down, take the good parts of the old days, leave the bad parts behind, and start to live moment to moment again and not so quickly and look up you know look around i've had loss for years and years I, you know all my grandparents have been gone for a long time and i've had cousins and aunts and uncles pass but the two big ones were my father dying when i had just turned 18 right after i graduated high school and my father's best friend looked me in the eye at his funeral and said, you have to be the man now. And uh, of course, I fell apart for years. I went down the tubes. I went the other way. That scared me. You have like a 40-something-year-old guy telling an 18-year-old kid, you're the man now. I didn't just sort of take over for my dad and like take care of my mom and my brothers and go get a job at a bank. I ran around and drove hot rods and drank and raised hell. But my brother died and uh, it, uh, I lost my mind. My brother, Jimmy, you know, he was a young guy. In 1988, he died suddenly of a heart problem that they didn't know he had. He was two years younger than me. It just, uh, it changed everything. I've only had a couple of times in my life when I was carefree like a period of a couple of years when I thought, you know what, I don't have really any responsibilities. I'm making enough money. I'm hanging out with my friends. I'm seeing these chicks here and those over there, you know, whatever it was. For a couple of years, I felt okay, which is very rare for me. And then he died, and I've never trusted happiness since. I have to really force myself to think that things are going to be okay in terms of worrying about my family or myself or what are my friends, whatever. Yeah, I've never been the same since my brother died. There's a melancholy in me that never goes away. I'm 50% happy and 50% sad at any given moment. And the only advice I can give people for when you lose someone uh, like that is you won't ever get over it. And the more you know that and embrace it, the better off you are. I don't want to forget my brother, and I don't want to forget what it felt like when he died because he deserves it. That's how important he was for, to me. So if I have to suffer and if I have to be sad for the rest of my life and if I have to be lonely without him, for, without his particular thing, his sense of humor and what he brought to life, 
then uh, that's the way I honor him. I'll be sad and melancholy about that forever, and I know it, and I accept it, and I live with it. But I think it's okay. I think it's okay to have all those feelings. And as an artist, that's where, that's where a lot of your stuff comes from. You keep honoring those people forever by singing that song or writing that movie or doing that part in the movie or writing a book or whatever it is that has a sadness and a melancholy and a fear in it. Those are the things that keep them alive, whatever you put into your work or your family or your art. You know, it's really hard to say what I believe in. You remember when John Lennon said he didn't believe in anything but himself and Yoko? Sometimes I feel like that, and sometimes I believe in almost magical stuff. I have very strong opinions sometimes and can be pretty intense about certain things, but they're not picked from the left or the right or anything. Maybe, for instance, if somebody says, I'm an atheist, you know, oh, I, you know, you just black out and that's it, and you may as well have never existed. So you got that person, and then you have another person who says, like, there's a guy in a robe with a beard on a cloud who told you to move to Wisconsin, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. I don't believe in either one of those. Because the fact of the matter is, whatever somebody professes to know or believe in, none of us know. For all we know, we could go to another planet. For, for all we know, we become stardust, like some people say. I really don't know, and nobody else does either. So you can say what you want about your beliefs, uh, if it makes you feel better, to believe in nothing or everything, that's up to each individual, and it doesn't hurt anybody else if you keep it to yourself. Fanatics of any type, I believe, are dangerous. That's a, a world that I've never lived in. I resist fanaticism at all costs. And uh, I'm fanatic about the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> but other than that, not much else. I grew up wanting to love everything. If I went to a movie, I didn't go in thinking, okay, let's see what Dick Van Dyke does this time. Or if you listen to a record, it wasn't like you're opening it so you can call your friends and say, this sucks. I think we're living in a time that's just become judgmental and everybody wants to see failure. They want to see people knocked off the hill. You can't have a television show without a competition because they want to see who cries this week and who, who goes downhill, who gets kicked out. We don't need one show about cupcakes, as far as I'm concerned. But you know what? If you got one, okay, that's fine. Let's show, have a show about cupcakes. But does it have to be a fucking competition? Do you have to have cupcake wars? And I'm sure people who have been in war kind of take offense to that. Because seriously, it's not that goddamn dangerous to make a cupcake. I guess I'm just really ready for people to kind of settle down and know each other again or root for each other as opposed to look for the faults in each other. And maybe that's why I keep thinking about and making stories from another time, you know, another time and another place. You know, there's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of great stuff in life from the top to the bottom and from the left to the right. And uh, life is magical and uh, I guess my thing is I, I wish that people wanted that magic. We lost our soul, and uh, 
We need to start all over and start writing songs on a guitar that has one string missing. You know. He has, in his words, lived a thousand lifetimes. He's made peace with his father and lives with the pain of his brother's death. But he's okay with all of it because it is both pain and magic that combine to make a life. Billy Bob Thornton, you are a master. I still dream all the time. I dream about things for the future for my kids. I dream about other movies that I want to write or make that will probably fail, but I don't care. I'm going to keep writing and keep doing the things that I believe in or that stuff I want to say, things that entertain me and I know entertain people, a certain segment of the people, because there are people out there who you're the best for them. I'm not the guy who makes huge movies that are blockbusters that make millions and millions of dollars. All I ever wanted to do was be an artist. And if I make money at it and I can take care of my family, wow, what a miracle. I, I, I think that's the, that's the ultimate thing. But I keep dreaming of things that are gonna take place that are gonna be artistically satisfying and that people are gonna get. And I've never stopped that, you know. And I've had a real love and fascination for, for this world that I got involved in. And uh, maybe I regret some things, but at the same time, you know, it's just what happened. You can't change it, so you, you live with it and you learn lessons. And uh, every moment adds up to something, you know, I mean, you, when you put them all together. You have to look at almost every life experience as just a, another card in the stack. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.